You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you're able to remain standing, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. A bit more standing than normal Sundays, but we... It is a custom, if you're able, to, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 9, and just the first 13 verses. And getting into a boat, he, that is Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Verse 9, as Jesus passed from there, he, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus, verse 10, reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, Jesus, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. We are continuing in our study of the gospel of Matthew this morning, and we come to chapter 9 in this great history of redemption. In our time last week, we witnessed Christ's authority. His authority was in every sentence of our text last week. We saw Christ's authority and command over the raging seas as he hushed a storm with just one rebuke from his mouth. Following that storm, the storm in the Sea of Galilee, we witnessed another raging storm in the form of two demon-possessed men who were being troubled, perplexed, afflicted by demons. Their lives, Matthew says, were so frightening that nobody would go their way. But Jesus, unflinching in his authority, walked right toward them. And to everyone's surprise, it was the demons who were afraid of Christ and not Christ afraid of the demons. To everyone's shock and amazement, the demons understood the kind of authority that Christ carried. But after the demons were permitted to move into the herd of pigs and the pigs ran into the sea and drowned, we're told that all the city came out to meet Jesus and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. 
It's an interesting thing to hear, isn't it? Demons begging for Jesus' mercy while an entire town begs him to leave. And what we learned from our time last week, and we'll learn again from our time this week as this theme of authority spills over into our text this morning, what we learned from this is that Jesus' authority is both disruptive and costly. It is compassionate. He does good with his authority. But when he brings his authority to this kingdom, this earth, it is both disruptive and costly. That herd of pigs was somebody's livelihood. That was somebody's inheritance. And the cost of these two men being freed from their oppression was too much for this town. And they begged Jesus to leave. His authority is disruptive and it's costly. Matthew has been showing us, hasn't he? In these nine chapters, he has been showing us the gospel of the kingdom. That is the good news that King Jesus has come here to us, to this kingdom. The good news of Jesus has come. And and what we're starting to see is that when God's kingdom comes near, his authority begins to rub against other authorities. His authority begins to conflict with the prevailing authorities of our day. His values begin to conflict with our values. His kingdom is coming near. And here in our text this morning, Jesus' claim on authority now reaches its apex. It reaches its highest boiling point. His claim on authority. Jesus' claim on authority in this text is not merely to have authority over the created order, He claims in this text not to have authority over the demonic realm. But instead, in our text this morning, Jesus claims and then displays that he has the authority to forgive sins, to absolve human beings of their transgressions against God Almighty. And it's this claim from Jesus that is at the absolute center of the opposition he received 2,000 years ago. And by the way, it's this claim from Jesus that he has the authority to forgive sins that is at the center of his opposition that he receives today. Most people are just fine with Jesus healing things and healing people. Most people are just fine with Christ's morality and his love for God and love for neighbor. Most people are just fine with the golden rule. But the daggers and the knives start coming out when Jesus starts to have claim and authority to forgive people of their sins. And so in our text this morning, we see two very distinct reactions to the authority of Christ to forgive sins. Two distinct reactions. First, there are those who are obviously threatened by his authority. This is, comes in the form of the scribes, the lawyers of the law. They're threatened by his, his claim to forgive sin. So there are those who are threatened. That is one response to the authority of Christ. I don't like your kingdom coming near. It is messing with my kingdom. And then there's another response in this text. It's those who can't get enough of his authority. They want it. They're, they're, they're convinced that it's good for them that his kingdom come 
near. I was thinking about this as I was preparing this week. I wonder if that dichotomy can exist in our hearts at one time. At once, we're sort of threatened by his authority. We don't like it. And in another sense, we're wooed by it. I wonder if that's you this morning. You feel that tension, that war in you. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But before we witness the negative reaction to Christ's authority, I want us to see this powerful exchange between Jesus and the paralytic. This is an iconic portion of Scripture. Um, And so I've entitled this first point, this first scene in the text, a healing he wasn't looking for. A healing or the healing he wasn't looking for. And this will begin in verse 1 and 2. Getting into a boat, Jesus, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now stop there for for just a moment. This is very typical of Matthew. Matthew will take a very long story, a traditionally long story, Matthew will, and he'll take it and he'll distill it down to its most potent reality, its most potent theme. He doesn't elaborate. He doesn't allow for all of the colors and textures to come to the surface, but he, he distills it down to its most potent theme or point. But thankfully, we get the whole story from Mark chapter 2. And what we learn from Mark is that this paralytic actually didn't come alone. Obviously, he is not going to be mobile. He has four committed friends who are bringing him on a stretcher. And these committed friends come up against obstacles. They want to get their friend to Jesus in order that he would be healed. They've heard that Jesus has compassion on those who are broken and that he's the healer. And so they come, these committed friends, carrying their friend to Jesus, and they, they get obstacles. They, they reach obstacles right from the beginning. There's, the house is too crowded. There's no room. They can't even get through the door jams. It is so crowded. And so these friends get the, the, the idea that, okay, well, let's, let's go up on the side of the house. In the first century, there were these sort of box houses with stairs on the outside and flat roofs. Let's go up. Let's carry this full-grown man up the stairs, and then let's dig through the roof so that we can lower our friend in the, at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus will be compelled by his own compassion and will heal him. And hopefully the owners of the house will forget that we just tore their roof off. So these, are, these friends are not only committed, they are audacious. They are literally through the roof in their ambition. And so when we read verse 2 again now of Matthew chapter 9, it has more punch. It has no more flavor to it, knowing that all of this has happened before this paralytic now gets to the feet of Christ. Read verse 2 again with me. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus was moved by their faith. We see this throughout the gospels. Jesus is compelled when he sees faith in him. He's moved by it. And what we see here in chapter 9 is the same thing we saw in chapter 8 with the leper. This kind of risk-taking boldness that comes from someone who is desperate to get close to Jesus. 
As Frederick Bruner writes, he says, quote, faith is bold. Faith is insistent. Faith is seemingly indifferent to social consequences. Right? Again, these guys just tore a hole through somebody else's roof. Those are social consequences. But faith was so compelling, they were willing to live in the consequences of that. Bruner goes on, and that, listen, that faith lives under one great compulsion, the determination to get into the presence of Jesus. Faith lives under, biblical faith lives under one great compulsion, the determination to get into the presence of Jesus. And so, yes, Jesus is moved by their faith. He's moved by it. But what he says next to them seems so utterly out of touch with the moment. What Jesus says next to them just feels tone deaf to what's happening. It's, it's borderline insensitive, maybe even cruel at first reading. Because Jesus looks at them in verse 2 again. He sees their faith. And he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Everyone in the room that day knew exactly what this man was looking for. Everyone in the room that day knew exactly what his four friends were doing. And yet Jesus looks at this paralytic man he sees his atrophying, motionless body plastered to a stretcher, and he can't move. And he looks at his friends who are dripping with sweat because they just brought a full-grown man upstairs and now through a roof. And he says to them, take heart, your sins are forgiven. I don't know if this resonates with you, but sometimes it can feel like Jesus is indifferent to our immediate pain and suffering, can't it? This man, he can't move. That's why he's there. And we say to the Lord, I have this immediate affliction, this immediate burden. I need you to rescue me this way. This is why I'm coming to you. I need deliverance from this trial, from this pain, from this debilitating paralysis. I just heard you can hush a storm with your mouth. You can move mountains into the heart of the sea with the, the snap of your fingers, with the rebuke of your mouth. You can move galaxies and systems and I can't move unless you speak the word. And this man gets, your sins are forgiven. Did he feel anything? How could he know if his sins were actually forgiven? Nothing happened and everything happened when Jesus uttered those words. 
Beloved, the truth is Jesus is not indifferent to our immediate pain and suffering. He's not. He cares deeply for all of us. He cares for our minds and our bodies and our souls. He cares about addiction. He cares about besetting weakness. He cares about cancer diagnoses. He cares about conflict in our marriages. He cares about conflict in our families. He cares about conflict in our work. He is not indifferent to our suffering. However, this moment in Matthew's gospel serves to remind all of us that forgiveness of our sin is the most fundamental need that you and I have. That doesn't mean we don't have other needs. And that doesn't mean that God is indifferent to our pain. But this text shows us that the most fundamental need is that we need to be forgiven of our sins. Again, another writes, quote, to restore health to this paralytic would perhaps save him from decades of suffering. And that would be a good thing. But to restore his soul would save him. Whatever becomes of his body would save him from an eternity of suffering. And so, dear suffering saint, the Lord, listen, if you're in here right now, you brought a deep burden, a deep wound. This is a word to you. The Lord will heal you. It is a guarantee the Lord will heal you. It is not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. Healing from your immediate affliction will come, may come, on this side of glory, and it may not. However, because Jesus has forgiven you of your sin and has called you son or daughter, you will stand before the living God in glory, totally healed from all of your affliction. The Apostle Paul seems to think that that truth, that healing that will ultimately come in glory is enough to salve our hurting souls now. The Apostle Paul would say to all of us who are feeling some sort of burden and affliction that meets us in the morning and is not, is not getting better, that though our outer self is wasting away, Paul would say, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then Paul says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. To compare our suffering now with the eternal weight of glory that is coming, there is no comparison. This will eclipse this. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And isn't this exactly what Jesus is doing with the paralytic? There is an obvious need. He's paralyzed. Everybody in the room is expecting a healing. Jesus has been healing, but Jesus doesn't look to the thing that is seen. He looks to the thing that is unseen, and the thing that is unseen is eternal. And it is so hard, it is so hard to believe, to trust Jesus in these moments or when we don't get those repeated answers to our prayers. Don't look to the things that are seen. Look to the things that are unseen. So the paralytic receives a healing that he was not looking for. That's point one. Second, 
This is all followed by now a controversy over Christ's authority. This is our second movement this morning, a controversy over Christ's authority. Look at verse three and following. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, they have some internal speak, internally they say to themselves, this man is blaspheming. In Mark's account, we should have this text on the screen. In Mark's account, in Mark chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, they go on a little bit further. It says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they have this theological problem with Jesus' claim to forgive sins. This is a man. This is a first century rabbi teacher from Galilee. This is not God. He is therefore blaspheming because God alone can forgive sins. And of course, they are right to conclude that unless Jesus is indeed God in the flesh, he is blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. And of course, the the feeling in the room and the implications are obvious. What's happening here? The implications are obvious. Jesus is not claiming to come with borrowed authority. He is not claiming to have sort of this borrowed access. Instead, he is claiming to have in himself the authority to forgive sins. And again, the implications are mind-boggling. In fact, the implications have reshaped the entire world for how we worship God, how we go to God for for our sins to be removed. Because by Jesus uttering just that one sentence, my son, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is abolishing the need for a temple, he's abolishing the need for a high priest, and he's abolishing the need for a sacrifice in one sentence. And the scribes, the doctors of the law, are are, are looking around saying, what on earth gives you the authority gives you the mediating authority to take someone's sins and absolve them for eternity. I don't see a sacrifice burning. I don't see a high priest with the ephod. I don't see any of these things. And so he must be a blasphemer. And they say all of this in their hearts. But the one who is Emmanuel hears their thoughts which is just more evidence, more implication that Matthew wants you to see and to understand just who Jesus is and the kind of authority he has. So look at verse four. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Imagine the startling (laughs) uh, response from those who were not speaking out loud. It's one of those moments, did I say that out loud or did you... How'd you pick that up? Am I mic'd right now? Is my Knowing their thoughts, he said, why do you think evil? That's interesting. Why do you think evil in your hearts? It is evil. It is demonic to conclude that Jesus doesn't have the authority to forgive sins. For which, verse five, for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Now let's answer that question. It's a rhetorical question Jesus is answering. What's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. (laughs) 
because nobody can quantify that. Nobody can prove that. Again, he probably felt nothing when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And he's still lying there, motionless. He felt nothing. So what, how can Jesus pr- prove this? Your, your sins are forgiven. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. But Jesus says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins so that you will know, so that you will have empirical evidence. I say to this man, rise, take up your bed and go home. And at that moment, you better believe he felt something. He felt strength reclaiming his bones and his body and his muscles. I don't know if he was born like this or this was a recent thing, but for the first time in a long time, He stands to his feet, unattended to by any of his friends. He picks up his stuff and he walks home. Healed, soul, and then body. This scene, in a sense, really seals the fate of Jesus. Because from this moment on, he would be hotly pursued by the scribes and the Pharisees. And when they ultimately indict Jesus, they will indict indict him on this charge. He is a blasphemer. He claims to forgive sins. He is standing in the place of God. He's a blasphemer. And so to some, his authority is a direct offense. Those who love their own authority. Those who love to be in control of the moment. Jesus Jesus pushes against that. And if you've you've been a Christian for any amount of time, this this is not unique to the Christian experience. When Jesus' authority comes near, it is not always easy to bend the knee. But it's always good. The whole city that begged him to leave in the previous section... And now here are these scribes who cannot stand to be in Jesus' authority. However, there's another group. There's another group that see his authority to forgive sins. They experience it and they love it. They don't tolerate his authority. They need it. It's like water for their souls. It is a fresh breath of air. Jesus' authority and they can't get enough of it. His authority brings the greatest hope to their ruined lives. And so our final scene comes in verse 9 and following. Look at verse 9 first. And Jesus passed from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So much we could say here, for the sake of time, Matthew is the writer of this gospel. Uh, he's a, his former vocation was that of a tax collector. And he was a tax collector at the gates of Capernaum, which made him a sort of a, a well-known tax collector and well-paid. Matthew's got some cash. And he worked directly for the Roman government. So Matthew is now hired. He is employed by the Romans. Matthew is a, a Jew, and he's hired by the Romans to collect taxes from his fellow Jewish kinsmen which makes Matthew a universally hated individual. Nobody likes him because nobody likes to pay taxes. 
Like, raise your hand if you like to pay taxes. Don't, don't actually raise your hand. No, nobody does. But, but what, if, what if you are sort of, you are now owned by another foreign government that's got their foot on your neck and they hire your brother to come and collect taxes from you? You're, you're, you're just, you're doubly exhausted with this person. You're universally, Matthew was universally despised. He was a sellout. He was a political liberal and he was probably wealthy, which made it worse. And yet, after Jesus heals the paralytic, Matthew records, Jesus heads straight for this universally despised person and says, you there at the tax booth, Matthew, follow me. We only know his name Matthew from Matthew's own gospel. The other gospels call him Levi. But Matthew wants you to know his name. Matthew wants you to know his former vocation. Matthew wants you to see and experience the transforming effect of the gospel upon one who was once universally despised and who is called now into Christ's own beloved family. Now Matthew's only friends were other universally despised people. Those were his only friends. And so from Luke's gospel, we learn that Matthew decides to throw a party. And he invites all of his other tax collectors and other universally despised friends. The guest list is for those who have been rejected. And so look at verse 10 and following. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, again, according to Luke, this is Matthew's house. This is Matthew's party. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So it's not hard to imagine this scene. I imagine if you've been a Christian, you've tried to picture this scene, Jesus reclining at table with tax collectors and sinners. And it seems to me, as I read this, it seems to me that Jesus looks very comfortable around them. He's reclining at table. He's not stiff-necked, standing at the doorway, wanting them to bring the food outside because he dare not step into this sinner's home. Instead, he's reclining at the table. Jesus looks and feels very relaxed around sinners and tax collectors. And just like the scribes who are out of their mind about Jesus' authority to forgive sins, now the Pharisees are out of their mind about Jesus' character. How could your teacher, this one who claims to have all authority on the moral law, remember the Sermon on the Mount was just preached, he claims to have the most authoritative interpretation on the law of God. How is it so that your moral teacher is sitting with sinners and tax collectors and he looks relaxed? He seems very cozy. 
Because to eat with sinners and tax collectors in their eyes was to condone their behavior. But as we'll see in a moment, Jesus is not condoning their behavior. Instead, Jesus is on mission. He is on mission to save those who are sick and in need of a physician. He's a doctor in the waiting room of the doctor's office. He's very comfortable in that environment. He knows exactly what to do in that environment. He is not out of his element, he's in his element. He is not condoning their behavior. He's on mission. Look at verses 12 and 13. But when he heard it, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. Now, you gotta hear Jesus. Jesus just told to the Pharisees, the ruling elders of the day, the ones who had the majority rule in the Sanhedrin, the most learned, the most respected teachers of the law of God in Palestine, Jesus said to them, go learn something. Go learn something. If you're upset with me being here with sinners and tax collectors, if you're upset with my mercy and my compassion, you clearly don't know your Bibles. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here, Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6, an Old Testament prophecy, in order to rebuke. Now listen, he is rebuking the Pharisees who have lost their capacity for mercy because of their preoccupation with their own pursuit of holiness. These Pharisees have lost their capacity for compassion and mercy because of their preoccupation in their own pursuit of holiness. So then, according to Jesus, here's the conclusion. This is really important. Personal holiness at the expense of mercy and compassion for others is not holiness at all. Personal holiness at the expense of mercy and compassion for others is not holiness at all. There are those in the church today who masquerade as Christians and they do a lot to beat their bodies into submission. They make long prayers and they give many sacrifices but they are utterly void of mercy and compassion for others. And therefore, the scriptures are clear. They are utterly void of the Holy Spirit. God does not care about our piety if our piety is divorced from our compassion because our our piety, our holiness is just for self-worth. It's just for self Grandizement, it's to put ourselves in the spotlight. Holiness apart from compassion is not holiness. 
It's self-worship. And God hates it. And Jesus hates it. And so he says to the Pharisees, I want you to go and learn something. I want you to learn something about the character of God. Is God opposed to holiness? Of course not. But the Pharisees were, were, they were, they were choosing between two realities. Be holy and make big sacrifices or be compassionate. Jesus says, in my economy, you don't choose between the two. Go and learn what this means. Beloved, aren't you glad, if you're a Christian, aren't you glad that Jesus had compassion on you? Like That's just like the no-brainer question, right? Yes, yes, I'm glad that Jesus had compassion on me. So next question, not so simple. Isn't then Christ our example? Isn't he our example? He is not only our savior, but he is our example in life. He was in the world, but not, was not of the world. He's not condoning their behavior. He's not engaging in their sin, but he's engaging them. And hasn't he sent us into the same world to engage the same sick with the hope of the gospel? In my view, a distinct mark of Christian maturity is this. A deep and growing desire for one's own personal holiness met by a deep and growing compassion for those outside of Christ. I'm going to say this even though I might regret it later, but I'm going to say it anyway. The Pharisees and the scribes had become so politicized in Rome and in Palestine. The threat of their authority was so one-sided. We will lose power in this culture if we give away compassion, if we follow Christ. We lose power. We lose power. And so they couldn't see the dynamics of the kingdom. They were blinded by their own power, by their own politicized power. And they couldn't see that the Messiah was right before them, that the kingdom of God had, had come. And beloved, that same threat is happening in the church today in America. This over-politicization of the faith. And we're so threatened by losing power in culture that we can lose the Christian ethic and we can lose our sight of Jesus. I had somebody come up to me the other day and I was just so heartbroken by this. They found out I was a pastor and, and that, that was good and great and we're talking about the church and, and they said to me um, something to the effect of how do you navigate politics? I, I would imagine you're always talking about how to, how to deal with Newsom and how to deal with Biden and how to deal with administrations. I imagine you're, you're always giving your people how to deal with, I'm saying, no, no, I'm, I, I don't I frankly care too much what Gavin Newsom is doing. King Jesus has come and he's given marching orders and a, and a way to obey. I don't mean to say I don't care about policies and I don't vote. Of course I do. But they go on to say, I think Gavin Newsom has a demon. What's your perspective? And I said, I don't know him personally. Of course I don't agree with all of his policies. I don't agree with anybody's, po all of their policies. And those are concerning. 
But when we politicize our faith, like the Pharisees, like the scribes, we can miss Jesus in the moment. In the moments of life, when we're so consumed about losing power, we can become the greatest of hypocrites. But here at Roots Community Church, myself included, have your political views, but have your bended knee to King Jesus. Because when he comes and when he performs miracles and when he forgives people of their sins, he is operating on a whole nother plane. And that's the one we follow. And if we have to lose power in order to follow Christ, so be it. So be it. That is the way of the cross. And so the great authority of Jesus to forgive sins is met by the great mercy of Jesus who pursues those who are far from him. May may those who come into our lives and those who come into our church sense the aroma of this Christ, not the polluted one, not the one that's pulled into different categories and sort of you know, molded and shaped this Christ. May they experience this aroma of this Christ in our lives and in our church for the glory of God. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his incredible work in forgiving us of our sins. This great and challenging example of what it means to, to walk as your kingdom people. Lord, the cost can feel great at times. When your authority comes, it is disruptive. It is costly, but it's good. It's good. And so, Lord, keep us faithful. Keep us humble on this path. Keep us correctable when we're off, when that Pharisaic pride wells up in our hearts and we want to separate ourselves from the world and and say, this person's got a demon, this one's evil, and I can't. Lord, keep us from that nonsense. Keep us engaged in the world, not of it. Lord, lifting up personal holiness, yes, but not at the expense of our mercy for others. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.